Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Just a heads up that this episode discusses sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And today we're going back to the 90s with two docs to tell different versions of the same disastrous event. HBO's Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage, and Netflix's Trainwreck, Woodstock 99. Both docs explore the events that transpire through the eyes of attendees, concert promoters, artists, and journalists. But before we get to the docs, we have a clip of a certain young VJ interviewing Sean Coombs, or Puff Daddy as he was known back then. <laughs> Let's take a listen. Like Woodstock back in 69, yeah, yeah, message I mean, I follow, I follow here. the whole scene. I mean, I don't really have a message right now, but just having a good time. You know, the millennium's about to drop. I'm just trying to enjoy people, enjoy life, the grass, the air, your pretty eyes. You know, I'm just on that type of vibe right now. Okay, Nam. Tell us. <laughs> What was it like to interview Puffy? Okay, so I was at Woodstock, and I was uh, acting as a production person. I was the videographer for Ed the Sock. Do you remember Ed the Sock? Of course I remember Ed the Sock. Yeah, so it was a very interesting perspective, walking through those crowds of a lot of dudes who were really drunk and dirty. <laughs> um, <laughs> as And everybody loved Ed the Sock, and mm-hmm. Ed can be a bit, you know, back in those days, he was kind of... I don't know. What was he known for, do you think? I I mean, he makes a lot of sarcastic comments about celebrities, about artists. I loved his his when he would do the music videos, like he would he would make fun of the music videos. He was really hilarious. He was that. hilarious, but he was always surrounded by beautiful young women and so yeah. being around him and the crowd that are, was attracted to him was kind of interesting. Anyway, so I was hanging out by the bathroom. I look up and I'm like, "Oh my god, that's Sean Combs." And Denise Donlin, who was my boss at the time at Much Music, she was like, go ask him for an interview. And I was like, well, there's no VJs around. She's like, you're doing the interview. I was like, what? Because I was, I'm pretty sure I had like, smelled like BO. And (laughs) 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 it wasn't a place where you have makeup on or anything like that, right? Well, as we see in the doc, there weren't like, wasn't a very good shower situation. No, 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 no. So uh, anyway, I walked up to him and I said that I was a fan of his music. I like Biggie stuff. Did he have a moment to talk to us? And so that's how it happened. And that was actually my first time on camera at Much Music. Um, mm. My first interview. No notes, no nothing. I just went off the top of my head. And my boss, Denise, at the time, was, as I mentioned, she was just standing a few feet away. So I was a little bit nervous as well because mm. you're trying to impress yeah. her. And later on, on day three of Woodstock, she pushed me to do the live hit. She's like, you're going up with the rest of the VJs and you're going to do the live hit. And I was like, what? I've never done live television. And so while we're up there, that's when the um, the fire started. Oh, dear. Red Hot Chili Peppers was on stage. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you see the smoke coming up on the scaffolding that we were standing on. This, yeah. uh, And we all had to run down through the crowd. Oh, my God. It was complete and utter chaos. Oh, well, okay. Well, to give some background to what uh, we're going to talk about Woodstock 99 was the 30th anniversary of the original Woodstock Music and Art Fair, which took place in 1969 during the height of the hippie movement and the war in Vietnam. And that 
event had artists like The Who, Jefferson Airplane, and Jimi Hendrix, basically the top acts of the day. And the festival is largely remembered as one of the most iconic events of the 1960s. Fast forward to 1994, and the organizers of the original decided to put on another Woodstock festival for the 25th anniversary, this time with alternative rock acts like Green Day, The Cranberries, and Nine Inch Nails, alongside some of the same bands that performed in 1969. Now, when it came time to put on another Woodstock Festival for the 30th anniversary in 1999, a lot had changed, both in the culture and what music was popular in the late 90s. Uh, Both docs cover similar territory, but Nam, having seen both films, I want to know what you think of the organizers trying to recapture the feeling of the 1960s and throwing another Woodstock Festival in the late 1990s. I mean, watching the documentaries, I think a lot of it was driven by money. But in the documentary, they say that they wanted to recapture that feeling of 1969 and give it to a new generation of kids to experience that um, environment. But I think after watching the documentaries, it was a little bit naive because obviously 1999 was a very different time from 1969. And I also thought it was really interesting that for 1999, there was only like three women performing um, yeah. in yeah. the festival. Top, uh, as headliners anyway. I don't yeah. know if maybe if there were like ones at the emerging artist stage. But yeah, the top three headliners at the time were yeah. just like... Yeah, and I remember women. hip-hop at the time was very, very big. And I think they had... Uh, DMX and Wycliffe Jean. Yeah. And I think they had Wycliffe Jean to kind of like uh, for that spirit of Jimi Hendrix. Yes. So, yeah, we can say that if the intent was to uh, have a new generation of kids experience 1969, okay. But then as we watch the documentaries, we find out that the spirit of 1969 might not have been what we all thought it was. Yeah. I I found a couple things interesting about sort of their their planning and in, in putting the 1999 festival together. One thing that I thought was interesting was just that I think there was an intent to do something about gun violence or address gun violence in a way. Uh, We just had Columbine happen a few months earlier. Uh, I think that the organizer, I think Michael Lang, who is the the co-founder of Woodstock, really wanted to do something to um, give you something to, I guess, I'm struggling with what (laughs) he was actually trying to accomplish. But basically, I think he wanted to uh, give you something to Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he wanted to give them something positive to engage with. Sorry for that long pause, everybody. But, you know, I think that, that there were a few obvious big differences. I mean, first of all, you know, in 1969, you had the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and that galvanized people's uh, attention in a big way. It had a Actually, purpose, I guess. It had a purpose, yeah. And I think also, you know, the setting was very different. I mean, in, in 1969, I think they were on a dairy farm. This time they were on an air base. And I think part of the reason was because they didn't want people to sneak in because they'd had that issue, I think, in 94. People were sneaking in and they didn't exactly. make any money, money off of it. Yeah. What does um, Woodstock 69 have to do with an airbase? Yeah. Right? Well, exactly. It's, it's the antithesis if you think about it. Yeah. The priorities had changed. I mean, if you're trying to make money, I mean, that's that, that's going to obviously inform the decisions you make. And I think that, you know, the docs kind of explore what those – the consequences were And be honest about that. that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the lineup of Woodstock – 99 was, as you mentioned, you know, very different in terms of the types of music that were featured. It was very rock heavy. There was um, a genre of rock called, well, rock and rap called new metal, which if you don't know, is basically a mashup of both those genres. And it's mostly performed by white bands. Can I give you an example? Uh, please. My name is Kim. Oh, God. I thought, you know what? I thought you were going to do, I did it all for the nookie. What? The nookie. And honestly, I like new metal. One of the probably the worst genres of music. Um, but here, here are some of the bands that were performing, and just just this is a very eclectic mix here. Mm-hmm. James Brown, 
Uh, he actually Legend. opened the show. Yeah. Uh, Wyclef Jean, as you mentioned. DMX, as you mentioned. Sheryl Crow. Jewel. Alanis Morissette. Okay. Those are, you know, I think pretty good artists, I would say. Here it gets a little uh, dicey. Limp Bizkit. And we're going to talk a bit about Limp Bizkit because they had a big part of uh, Woodstock 99. Korn, another new metal band. Uh, Bush, a popular sort of post-grunge band of the late 90s. And then the Red Hot Chili Peppers who closed the festival. And, you know, the as the films both show, this was a pretty rock-friendly, dude-heavy festival. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I don't know. What did you think of... Of the oh, lineup. Well, you missed uh, another band that was there, Megadeth. <laughs> oh, of course. I missed a few bands. There's like there are a lot of bands. Fatboy Slim was another artist who was there. I'm, but yeah, I mean, it was it was very. Moby. I think you know that time. I think what their film is trying to show is that, both films are kind of saying is that the genre of, of new metal, sort of, it's very aggressive. Limp Bizkit in particular. Uh, Fred Durst does a song called Break Stuff mm-hmm. and he just really gets the crowd amped and he's like and they start tearing things down and it's just like you know he's not doing anything to sort of calm them down yeah um, you know I noticed that uh, both docs did touch about the band selection and I don't know if that was the problem I think hmm. that People can get into an environment and listen to different types of music from different backgrounds and have a great time. Um, I think if you looked at 1969, there was a lot of artists that might not have, you know, been found on the same radio station. I mean, I know politics back then was very different from 1999. I think there was there was um, a lot of pent up frustration because the minute you walked into the venue uh, in Rome, New York for 1999, People had brought water, food. They they took it right, uh, and they were charging like four bucks for food, water for water. Yeah, even for pretzels, four dollars yeah. for a pretzel. And by the end of day one on Friday, everything was kind of starting to disintegrate. And a lot of these artists that we mentioned hadn't even performed yet, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a cop out for I don't know. Uh, saying that people with different music tastes can't come together and have a good time. I felt sorry. I felt bad for the female artists because, definitely, you know, you have these guys in the audience and they're, you know, saying, show us your, mm, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was really impressed with Offspring because I, oh, because yeah. we were working, I didn't really get a chance to, I saw some of it. Like I saw the, I saw the stuff that uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers did and Limp Biscuit, But when Offspring was saying to the crowd, you know, just because a girl's walking around at the top on doesn't mean that you can just grab exactly. her, you know, like be mindful, be uh, polite, be respectful. And they also said, you know, if you see a guy uh, grab him by the, yeah, you know what. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it was good of them to say that. Yeah. So I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, um, you know, when you say that, it's uh, you're saying that these people can't vibe to, True. This, you know, but it's. I think it's just the way... Uh, people were treated. It was great to have all these different, you know, they had um, a rave uh, area. I I remember getting up at like three o'clock in the morning. Well, I didn't, (laughs) I don't think we slept, but I I left where we were staying at like three in the morning to go film Moby because I was a videographer and it was really cool to see, you know, to be in that environment where it's just like the lights, so many people in one area, Moby on stage. Mm -hmm. I think they 
put a lot of effort in thinking about the experiences, mm. but I don't think they put enough effort into thinking about the people who were there, how they would be taken care of. Do we have enough uh, places for them to use the bathroom? There's a shower scene in the HBO one where you see that they had the showers next to each other for the guys and the girls, yeah. and the guys were just walking over and peeking and looking at the girls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> water fountains were limited. There was nowhere to sit. There was no shade. It got really hot. People were hiding underneath the trucks yeah. for um, the had the equipment that were televising it. And so I don't think they put enough time in thinking about how the people who were there, who were making them the money that they wanted to make that profit, they didn't take enough time to think about their experience. Yeah, no, I think that you're right. I think the infrastructure just wasn't in place. And I think you're right. People can enjoy different types of music. I've been to music festivals and it's, you know, you know, you have rap, you have Coachella, rock. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You have all sorts of things. Um, but I want to uh, touch on what you mentioned about uh, women and just how they were treated. And, uh, this part of the conversation we're going to have is, is it's dealing with sexual assault. And so content warnings apply. Uh, both docs show us just the awful misogyny and sexual violence that occurred. And many of the women who attended uh, reported being sexually assaulted afterwards. And we see actually uh, in the doc lots of footage that were, was taken of women being groped, you know, in the crowd. You know, some are being who are crowd surfing. Uh, I don't. I don't think we see this, but well, one woman reported being assaulted in front of the stage. Yeah, um, mean, no one did anything. No one did anything. I mean, this was just terrible. I mean, this was. Uh, and I remember hearing about this after because I watched this on Much Music at the time, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't know about obviously the assaults that took place. What, what did you have any inkling of that was going on? Yeah, I mean, it's so weird what you block out because when I was watching uh, specifically the HBO uh, doc, I started to remember a lot of things because. We were in a work environment where I think our living quarters were nicer. I didn't have to look for water. We had a lot of walking and all that. But I I think back now that when I did do the Moby shoot, I went by myself. Oh, dear. <laughs> myself on a camera at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning to the venue, shot it, and then came back to where everybody was staying. And that kind of makes me angry because anything could have happened to me. Yeah, yeah. But there wasn't anything in place for that and it was that was the era that women lived i remember when we were we did a thing for uh, much music we used to do these shows called us snow job which meant that we went to um like during the winter we went to like florida and did a show in florida where we're on the beach having fun and i remember one time um being made to wear a bikini i didn't want to wear a bikini on camera i didn't feel comfortable being in a bikini on camera and I was made to wear it, and I was super uncomfortable, right? Mm. So that was the time where women weren't really asked of, you know, how you feel about things. Remember that was the era of Girls Gone Wild. Yeah. They were selling these videos at night of young girls. A lot of them, for me anyway, they looked underage, where they were, you know, taking off their tops and flashing their breasts. Yeah. And, you know, kissing each other and stuff. And that stuff was on television commercials. Oh, yeah. And, you know. Big popular in college dorms. Yeah. And it wasn't seen as a big deal. In the HBO documentary, you see the promoter of Woodstock 99, like, blame the women for being harassed. Like, 
you know, the problem was that there was a lot of girls walking around without their shirts. Why were they? What did they expect was going to happen to them? That was awful. It was awful. And, and I think they say that in both docs. In both docs, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, so if you are trying to recreate the spirit of 1969, 1969, that was the spirit of 1969. Um, that was a time when women were really trying to own their sexuality in, an, in a political environment that told them to just sit in the corner and be quiet. Mm. So that was a different time and era. But you're trying to recreate it in 1969 at a time when women are just seen as kind of like window dressing. Yeah. And we we really need to have a conversation about what's happening to our young boys. You know, we've tried to cover this on the agenda and yep. it, people get really strong feelings about it. But there is a problem. Uh, there's a, a feeling, uh, there's a problem of uh, entitlement, feeling like you're entitled to certain things. And I, I found it interesting that both docs kind of tried to touch on that. But I think the HBO one did it better. What did you think? I, I liked the HBO's approach to it because I think, you know, we, we got – it takes a more 30,000-foot view. And, and they interview journalists who may not have been there mm-hmm. but were able to kind of provide context to some of the culture that was to – the, to the environment that we're in. I mean, I think Wesley Morris, who we've actually had on the agenda Yeah, before, he was great. You produced it. I yeah, say, yes, yeah. and you did. Uh, you know, he talks a bit about just, uh, you know, the uh, – this is, you know, the same era as the Monica Lewinsky scandal and how she was sort of – Disposable, you know, to to the Clinton administration, basically. Didn't Kid Rock on stage at he, Woodstock and that? He good, said, "Good point." Yeah, he I, actually said, "You know, Bill Clinton's a pimp and Monica's a HOE." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the crowd went crazy. Yeah, no, it's definitely a definitely a very pre meet to event. <laughs> yeah, and I, I bet I want to. I would even say that a lot of girls there probably believed it because I yeah. during the Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton scandal. I was like, well, she shouldn't have done that, yeah. right? So it was a very different time from we were having this conversation. What is it? Twenty years later? Oh my god! Three years Ooh. later. Jeez. Jeez, we're so old. Anyway, <sighs> I'm so old. Uh, we're doing this, um, but this—it's a very different time to. We've had like two decades to kind of think about what happened in 1999, and um, we can say, oh, we should have seen it coming, but I don't know if we can. No, it, it, it's kind of hindsight is twenty twenty sort yeah. of thing. Well, the festival, you know, it was three days long, and you were there for all three of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the end, it was just outright pandemonium. The organizers, <laughs> I don't know why they did this, but they gave, the, a not-for-profit group was handing out candles. They were going to do a ha- candlelight vigil. Don't laugh, though, but again, it's gun- okay. So they gave these candles out, uh, a non-profit group to, uh, was giving candles out to the participants there, right? Yes. But remember, again, Woodstock 69 was about peace, love, and happiness. I know, right? I know. I, th- I think some, a lot of this stuff I think you can say in hindsight was a bad idea. Yeah. Because obviously they didn't know or couldn't have, maybe they couldn't have foreseen, but someone probably should have thought this through. Yeah. They're handing out these candles to a very volatile crowd. And what are they going to do? They're going to set fire. And that's what basically happened. They destroyed the place. <laughs> yeah. So you saw this, right? Like you saw the fires. Like, what did you think? Well, can we, we haven't mentioned the mud Mm. Or the powder potty. Well, we haven't mentioned. I mean, the sanitation was terrible. It was disgusting. No the smell, clean water. Yeah. The smell. So the first day from Friday, they. <laughs> oh my gosh, the porta potties overflowed. So the stuff in the porta potties got mixed with water, and people were playing in it because they thought it was mud. Ugh. But it was fecal matter, right? Yeah. And so people are walking around, and a lot of people that Ed was talking to were covered in this stuff. And, of course, Ed is like, you smell like... 
And they, and, they, and they got sick from it. Some people got sick, right? Well, it's like, I don't know if it's like a mob mentality, but again, I think a lot of those people were trying to recapture what they saw in 1969. In 1994, it rained mostly, so people were walking around covered in mud. But this time around, it wasn't. So it was... The sanitation was awful. People didn't have access to water, but you can have beer. <laughs> yeah, and that made them dehydrate faster. Exactly. Or, or dehydrate and younger anyway. kids drinking. And it, yeah. it wasn't like they were checking ID or anything. No, terrible security. I mean, was there security? Well, I, they <laughs> called them the Peace Patrol, but they basically were just like given like, a th- what was it, a three-hour class or something like that? And yeah. And there was and no real of, training after that. So uh, Woodstock was Woodstock 99 was what, 300, 350,000 yeah. people? They had about 10,000 people doing security. Yeah. I mean, come on. What is the point? Well, you know, right? it just, uh, yeah, not 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 well planned out at all. And and, and actually, you know, we got to have to wrap up. But I, I, you know, we've watched both docs, the HBO and the Netflix one. Do you have a preference? Like, which one do you think, if you, I mean, if you didn't want to watch all like both, mm-hmm. which one would you say people should watch? I would do the first, the Netflix one. And okay. this is why, because you see a lot of what was happening behind the scenes because the promoters and the organizers would like us to believe that, oh, we didn't foresee this coming. But in the Netflix one, you see how they were trying to cut things because the budget, they needed to make a profit. You have footage from the people who were part of the organizing committee and you, it's uh, it's people who were there, like the journalists were there. Their bigger names, Jewel, I think they spoke to. Jewel is in both uh, documentaries, and so is Jonathan Davis. Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah. And um, what's his? Uh, I forget his name. Gwen Stefani's ex-husband. Oh, Gavin Rustin. Oh, I, how do I forget a face <laughs> like that? <laughs> uh, he was in uh, the Netflix one, and uh, Ananda Lewis, who I loved at MTV, she was in that one. Right. So, uh, so I, I think it gives you. A different perspective because it was the people that were there and what was happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I think the HBO one does a, a little different, like a bigger picture. It does, or, yeah. yeah. And but it has the best quote from the promoter where he's just like he's still blaming everybody but himself. Mm-hmm. It's Limp Bizkit's fault. It's yes. the artists. It's the crowd. It's the girls. A handful you know, of knuckleheads. Yeah, knuckleheads. It's MTV. Like he dared to blame MTV because MTV was broadcasting what was happening there. Yeah. Um, so I thought that piece was just kind of like. Wow, dude, you haven't even learned anything. Yeah, I, 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 it's hard for you to pick one. I think I'm, you know, if you're a Woodstock '99 completist like I am, <laughs> uh, I would watch both because I think there's some value to watching both and getting uh, the different perspectives. And I think they do, even though they're kind of covering the same territory a lot. There is, and, and there is a lot of overlap. But I would just say that I, uh, what I liked about the HBO one is that they are getting people who are able to kind of provide different critical lenses. Mm-hmm. You know, I think interviewing Wesley Morris and uh, another journalist, Maureen Callahan, mm-hmm. to sort of provide sort of a, you know, a racial or a gender lens to the, the events and sort of talking about what, what society was like back then was pretty valuable. So I would recommend watching that as well. Um, I think it was interesting that the promoters agreed to be in both docs. I know. And actually, Michael Lang passed away this year. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. He was the, yeah. And he's one of the, like, I should, I think it he's mentioned the creator of He's one of the co-founders. He was in 1969. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was interesting that they, they took part in it. And I think part of that may have something to do with just wanting to maintain the, the narrative. Mm. Because I think that, you know, we see them in press conferences uh, during Woodstock 99 trying to defend what's happening and yeah, that was pushing really... back really hard against journalists who are asking very critical questions about 
what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that was from like day one. Basically, so yeah. if you address those problems at day one, you might not have ended up with day, you know, on day three with everything burning uh, after the fact, finding out all these the number of rapes that have happened, mm-hmm. the sexual assaults, you know, or someone died. Um, yes. And, That's actually in the HBO version. Yeah. We, we find out that a, a, a an attendee uh, passed away tragically there. He, uh, I think, died of hypothermia. But did he? Because they're saying that they didn't have the right, they didn't have uh, the right people to take care of him. Oh, that's so right, yeah. it might not, he might not have died if they actually, that was something that the promoters thought about. Mm-hmm. It just kind of felt like they were always 10 steps behind. And yeah, I thought it was interesting that they would be in both documentaries. Um, but I guess there's something to be said about when you believe your truth, <laughs> you're going to cling to it, which is unfortunate because we've no, we've seen since then, like Coachella started in, 90, in 1999, right, yeah. And they knew how to do it. Different artists, uh, when people were coming into Coachella, they were giving them bottles of water. Yep. They did it right. And for th- for the promoter in the HBO doc to kind of maintain his stance, I thought was di- disrespectful to the people who were hurt at this festival. The young man who died. Um, you have to take accountability. You have to. But, yeah. Well, one last question for you. Have you been to a musical music festival since? Does Caravana count? <laughs> I think so. Is yeah, I've been to Caravana. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've been to Caravana, and I've been to Glastonbury in uh, the UK. Of course, my UK husband would say I'm saying it wrong. Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I've been right. there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I always know the exits. You know, I know where my exits are and just like aware of my body at all times. And, and stay hydrated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the podcast. You can stream Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage on Crave, and Trainwreck Woodstock 99 is on Netflix. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. This episode was produced by yours truly and Matthew O'Mara and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Special thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Our manager for podcasts is Sharaya Tajvidi, and our executive producer for digital is Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening.